0: We all sat here, I don't know what I'm doing, but okay. (laughs) Hebrews chapter 11 this morning, we pick up in our study. Author Brennan Manning wrote these words, The splendor of a human heart that trusts gives God more pleasure then Westminster Cathedral, the Sistine Chapel, Beethoven's Night Symphony, Van Gogh's Sunflowers, the sight of 10,000 butterflies in flight, or the scent of a million orchids in bloom. Trust is our gift back to God, and he finds it so enchanting that Jesus died for love of it. Hebrews 11 teaches us, that we please God by faith. In fact, that's the only way we can please God. God wants our trust. God wants your trust. Jesus died to win our trust. When we put our trust in God, we bring Him pleasure. God's smile comes as a result of our faith in Him. Look at Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 6 this morning. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For for he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. All right, here it's stated in the negative, obviously. It is impossible to please God apart from faith. But the positive side of that. Is that means that by faith we can please God? Trust brings God's God pleasure because trust expresses our dependence on God. We trust him because we need him. Now, the author of Hebrews says the one who comes to God by faith must believe first of all that he is, that he exists. And secondly, that he is the paymaster for all who seek him. He will pay us back for trusting him. When we have a need, whatever that need is, we know God exists by faith. We come to him by faith. We don't look for proof. We come to God by faith. And we come to him for help. And in coming to God for help, we believe that he is the one who will reward us for trusting him with our need, for putting that out to him. And as we trust God to meet our need, he is pleased then with our trust. That brings him pleasure. You've also seen those computer software programs teaching dummies like me how to use the software. Well, Hebrews chapter 11 is the Faith for Dummies chapter. He's teaching us all about what it means to trust Him. And He's going to give us all kinds of examples of that, drawn from Old Testament history. It's all about how we trust God. And we look back at all of those who have trusted God in the past, in all of their experiences to learn how we can trust God in our present experiences. We examine the lives of men and women who have walked the road of life before us to find out that we can trust God to help us walk our roads of life. So first of all, let's look at Abel. The first example, verse 4. And the principle is, righteousness is the result of faith. Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 4. By faith, Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained the testimony that he was righteous, God testifying about his gifts, and through faith, though he is dead, he still speaks. Now, the story of Cain and Abel is one of the most familiar stories in all of the Bible. Even non Christians, even those who aren't associated with the church, often know the story of Cain and Abel. It's a story filled with sibling rivalry and, of course, the first murder in history. Cain, of course, was the firstborn son of Adam and Eve. Abel was his younger brother. Cain was a farmer, earning his living through growing produce in the fields. Abel was a shepherd, taking care of the sheep, the flocks. The time came for both Cain and Abel to give God a sacrifice, an offering. And Cain brought to God the offering from his fields, the vegetables, the fruit, and all of those things that he had grown in his fields. He brought that as an offering to God. Abel, being a shepherd, brought a lamb and sacrificed it and offered a blood sacrifice to God. Well, Genesis 4 tells us that God was pleased with Abel and his offering, but he was not pleased with Cain and his offering. And that resulted in a conversation between Cain and God in Genesis 4, because Cain was angry that God had not accepted, had not been pleased with his offering, and that God had discriminated against him in not accepting that offering. So God spoke to Cain about his anger in Genesis 4. And God said, Look, if you do well, won't you be satisfied? Won't you be accepted? Won't you feel better about all of this? But if you do not do well, then sin is crouching at the door. You must master your sin. Cain did not listen to God. And he murdered his brother Abel, and God then cursed Cain for the murder of his brother. It is clear that God chose Abel's sacrifice over Cain's offering. But why? Why did God discriminate in that way? What was it that set the two apart? Genesis doesn't really tell us why. Some people have speculated that Cain brought the produce from his fields and Abel, of course, brought a blood sacrifice and that God had told them that they should offer a blood sacrifice for their sins. Except nowhere in Genesis 4 are we told that this is a sin offering and there's no indication that they even knew the difference between a blood sacrifice or any other kind of offering to God. Why would God discriminate against farmers in favor of shepherds and their offerings? Well, some say it was because Abel was righteous and Cain was unrighteous. That is, Abel was a good person and Cain was a bad person. And Abel is called a righteous man by Jesus in Matthew chapter 23 and verse 35. But here is the question: Is the righteousness of Abel the cause or the effect of his favor from God? The answer is found in Hebrews 11:4. Here is God's commentary on that decision, those decisions back there. It was by faith, that Abel offered a better sacrifice than Cain. The key is by faith. The issue was not so much what they gave, but why they gave it. Abel gave his offering by faith in God. Cain did not give his offering by faith in God. That is the simple issue as stated here in Hebrews 11.4. Verse 4 goes on to say that God testified that Abel was righteous after he gave his offering by faith, not before. Righteousness is the result of the faith. It is not the cause of God's favor, it is the effect of God's favor. God testified about Abel's gifts his offering that they came from the right heart attitude of faith. And that's why he is called righteous. So Abel, though dead long ago, still witnesses to us this simple truth. Righteousness is the result of faith. The central issue with God is a heart issue for all of us. Look, folks, we can give God lots of money. We can make all kinds of sacrifices in the name of God. We can do all kinds of good works in the name of God. Presumably, Cain gave the best, maybe, of his fields. We can do lots of good things for God without ever becoming righteous in the eyes of God. Why? Because righteousness isn't based on our works. Never has been, never will be. The question is inside your heart. Do you come to God in faith or not? When we put our money in the offering plates on Sunday morning, do we give to God as a statement of our faith in God? Do we give to God because we trust Him to meet our needs? The value of our offering to God, just like Cain and Abel, comes from faith. Not the amount, not the value of our wealth or anything else. It comes from faith. In a sermon on giving, Dave Ferguson, pastor of Community Christian Church in Naperville, Illinois, told the story of Jeff and Julie, who attended their church there. They they had moved there from California in a very difficult and desperate financial situation. They were behind in their rent and their car payments. They owed back IRS payments, 16 credit cards with more than $40,000 in debt, not enough money to buy food to put in their refrigerator. And on top of all that, they decided to start a carpentry business. At the same time, a Christian friend challenged them to make their finances a matter of faith and commitment to the Lord and to give 10% to God before they paid their bills. Hmm. Jeff thought, this is nuts. This is crazy. So he and Julie talked about it, but they really struggled with the idea of giving to God first, with what they had, when they didn't have enough for themselves. They realized it was a matter of trusting God first. And so here are Jeff's words. We learned to make God the first priority in our lives, and we had no idea how we'd get by. During the week after this decision, my brother and I were dropping off flyers at a construction site looking for work, We'd started a carpentry company. We met a builder. He asked if we would be interested in doing their work. He had a house that was ready for us to start immediately and about 20 more to do during the next 12 months. Julie and I no longer questioned how we'd honor our financial commitments, so Julie and I decided to increase our giving. The story is much, much more than about finances, he writes, it's about faith. Stepping out and trusting God with all that we have, our lives, our future, our relationships, and even our finances. Now as I reflect on this story and what we experienced, I'm still trying to answer one question. What was it that we sacrificed? The issue is faith, isn't it? The bottom line is, God first or is He not first? With what we have, with what we are, with what we do... With everything. The question is not how much you have, but will you put God first with what you have? Righteousness, as far as God is concerned, is the result of that trust. It's not your achievements. It's your faith. Is God first. Second principle and second person in this chapter, Enoch. And the principle is heaven is the reward of faith. Verse 5. By faith Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God took him up. For he obtained the witness that before his being taken up, he was pleasing to God. So our second story is the story of Enoch from Genesis chapter 5. Enoch was 65 years old when his son Methuselah was born. The Bible says that Enoch walked with God 300 years after Methuselah was born, and he was not, for God took him. Hebrews tells us more. Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. Literally, the verb means that Enoch was transferred without death. He went straight to heaven without dying. You know, we normally get promoted to heaven when we die, right? For most of us, that's the expectation. Enoch was not promoted to heaven on death. He got to heaven by transfer. Why? Well, the verse tells us that Enoch pleased God. For 300 years, he pleased God. We think it's tough, you know. We live 70, 80, 90, maybe 100. 300 years he pleased God. That's a long time to live in a way that pleases God. How did he do it? He did it by faith, we are told. The next verse, verse 6, is our thesis for this section. Without faith, it is impossible to please him. So, we know that it is impossible to please God without faith. So that when it says that Enoch pleased God, it must mean that he had faith, he trusted God. That he was walking with God. In the Old Testament... In that section on, he, on Enoch, it talks about how he walked with God for those 300 years. So walking with God and pleasing God and living by faith are all the same thing. If You walk with God by faith, you please God by faith, it's by faith. They're all the same thing. They're just different ways of saying In fact, the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament in Genesis 5, translates that not with he walked with God, but he was well-pleasing to God. So a walk with God that is well-pleasing to God, simply put, is a walk by faith. Day by day for 300 years. And for that reason, God gave him a company transfer directly to heaven. The Apostle Paul says in Philippians chapter 3 that our citizenship is in heaven. It's not here. This is temporary, folks. Our citizenship is in heaven. That's where we're headed. We live on earth by faith in God who will one day take us to heaven. And like Enoch We please God, not with our accomplishments, but by faith, day by day. Not with our achievements, but each daily decision to trust Him in whatever you're experiencing. Enoch simply trusted God and walked with God for 300 years, faithfully pleasing Him, and for that reason he enjoyed heaven as his reward. We can walk with God by faith and so please Him by trusting Him. Whatever comes into your life this week, you trust Him. One day, we will enjoy our reward too, because of faith. Third person is Noah. Devotion is the attitude of faith. Verse 7, By faith, Noah, being warned by God about things not yet seen in reverence, in devotion, prepared an ark for the salvation of his household by which he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. Again, righteousness comes by faith. Television interviewer and journalist Larry King describes three farmers who gathered daily in a field during a terrible drought. The men are down on their knees and they're praying for God to send rain, to end this drought. Unfortunately, it doesn't rain. Every morning they get up and they meet in the field and they pray that God would send rain. One morning, an uninvited stranger approaches and asks the men what they're doing. They respond, We're praying for rain, they say. The newcomer looks at each of them and shakes his head. No, I don't think so. The first farmer says, of course we're praying. Can't you see it? We're down on our knees. We're pleading with God for rain. Look around. See the the drought. We haven't had rain in in more than a year. We need rain. The outsider continues to nod his head and advises them their efforts will, will never work. The second farmer jumps in and says, we need the rain. We aren't asking only for ourselves, but for our families and our livestock. The man listens, nods, and says he still isn't impressed. You're wasting your time, he says. The third farmer can't take it anymore. He's angry now and he says, Look, what would you do if you were in our shoes? The visitor says, You really want to know? The three landowners answer, We really want to know. The future of our farmlands is at stake. The guest announces, I would have brought an umbrella. I would have brought an umbrella. Do you believe what you're asking? Noah didn't bring an umbrella, but he built an ark. (laughs) That's a mighty big umbrella. And he built the ark before the rain came. Now that's trust. God warned Noah about things we're told here that were not yet being seen. In other words, God warned Noah about a coming global flood that would wipe out mankind in judgment because of their sin, except for Noah and his family, and God would start over with Noah and his family because the rest of the world was too wicked. So in effect, as he says here, when Noah built the ark and entered that ark, he was, by his faithful actions to God, condemning the rest of the world to death. God told Noah to build a gigantic boat in a land that had no ocean. Noah had to act on something that he could not see. He had to trust God for a work that no one could possibly have envisioned in his day. Nor for that matter in our day since the skeptics abound. It may have been even more dramatic than that, as various people point out. It's possible that the world had never had rain before this time. Because, according to Genesis 2.5, a mist rose from the ground and watered the earth so rain was not needed. Now, we don't know if that process was still in place by the time Noah lived on the earth. But it's possible that that was still the process that God used to water the world. But Noah had to trust God and carry out a command that far exceeded anything he could reasonably understand. He walked with God by faith. And the text says that Noah built the boat having been reverent, Or devoted to God. It's a word that refers to our piety and our commitment to God. It's the attitude of faith that God looks for in us. It is an attitude of devotion, of reverence. We may wonder what God is doing, but we don't question his right to command us to do it. And we put into action our devotion to God. We obey God because we are devoted to God above all else in this world. Fourth character illustration. Abraham and the principle obedience is the work of faith. Verse 8. By faith, Abraham, when he was called, obeyed by going out to a place which he was to receive for an inheritance, and he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he lived as an alien in the land of promise, a foreigner, as in a foreign land, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise, for he was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. Trust and obedience are two sides of the same coin. Or you could put it this way, faith and faithfulness are two sides of the same coin. You will not obey God if you do not trust God. And you don't really trust God unless you obey him. And Abraham is the classic illustration of this principle. God knows better than we do. And when God tells us to do something, we had better do it or we prove that we don't really trust God. Abraham was living in a very comfortable city. He had a comfortable lifestyle. Ur of the Chaldees was one of the great cities of the ancient world and then God called him and said you're to leave your home your family and all you have here and you're to go where I am calling you there's just one little catch he didn't know where he was going isn't that the way God often works with us we've got a Go, but we don't know where we're going. God knows, but we don't. That's faith. Follow God, and the result becomes clear in his time. Abraham finally arrives in the promised land. He gets to where God is taking him. And God tells him, look, Stand here and look, and all of this land is going to be yours, right? Did he ever get it? No. He never got the land. He never saw the fulfillment of that promise. Abraham, it's all yours for your descendants. But he lived as a foreigner in a land the rest of his life. The only piece of property that Abraham ever owned... In the promised land that God had promised, that God had given him, the only piece of property was the burial plot for his wife. It's the only piece of land he ever owned in that promised land. He lived as a foreigner, trusting in the promises of God his entire life, never seeing the fulfillment of it. Can you do that? That's faith. Can I do that? That's going, not knowing. It's trusting. We know Him. We don't know the way. And He did it, we're told, because He was waiting for a city whose designer and builder was God. Was that the city of Jerusalem in the land of Palestine? Was that some city that He could see? No. This city was the one designed and built by God. This is the heavenly City. This is heaven. Because he looked to God for his eternal life, he could live for God in this temporal life. God does impossible things through improbable people, but the results may not be seen until we get to heaven. And it all happens in the daily lives we live here. The little faithfulnesses that we give to God daily. Many years ago in the city of Minneapolis at Bethlehem Baptist Church, they needed a Sunday school teacher for the junior high boys. You always need Sunday school teachers for junior high boys, you know. This is like the toughest class in Sunday school. This class was particularly tough. It wasn't really that they were so bad, they were just very energetic and hard to handle. No teacher had been able to control them as they were growing up. Ewald Chalberg, a Swedish masseur, was asked to teach the class, and he agreed to teach the junior high boys class. Now, Ewald still had his Swedish accent. He still spoke in broken English. And the buzz all over the church was the word he'll never make it three weeks and he's finished as junior high boys Sunday school teacher. Never going to cut it. Somehow Ewald Childberg believed God when he took the class. He stayed with it through the years. He kept teaching junior high boys. Some years ago, Stuart Briscoe was asked to come out to that church and share in a special service. It was the 10th anniversary of the death of Ewald Childberg. A Sunday school teacher, and they were inviting people from all over for the 10th anniversary of this Sunday school teacher's death. During the service, they recounted that at least 40 men were in full time Christian ministry someplace in the world because of Ewald Chalberg. He taught boys, he loved boys. He watched over boys as they grew up. He invested in boys. And the world is being changed because one man taught a junior high boys class faithfully. That's what we're talking about here. In fact... On the morning of that anniversary celebration, 27 church members in that church stood up to say, we're going to be like Ewald Chalberg in a small way by serving God faithfully here in this ministry. 27. So here's an obscure immigrant with a Swedish accent who found significance when he trusted the Lord enough to obey the Lord, and quite frankly, the world is being changed by his ministry. I want to share stories like that because, you know, it's, it's one thing to talk about. We talk about Abrahams, and we talk about these people that, that are heroes, right? And we forget that it's really in this stuff that God's heroes are born and made. It's not necessarily in the, in the movie-type stories, it's in the individuals who, by faith, teach Sunday school classes, who, by faith, invest themselves in, in people, in ministries, day after day after day, who serve in Bible bees, who serve in Awana, who do these things because, by faith, they believe God will use them to make a difference. And those people then go out and make a difference in this world. That's how God works. That's faith. All right, number five, Sarah. We finally get to a woman, right? There's only a few women in Hebrews 11, but they're important. Sarah, and the the principle is promise is the focus of faith. Look at verse 11. By faith even Sarah herself received ability to conceive even beyond the proper time of life since she considered him faithful who had made the promise. Therefore also there was born of one man and him as good as dead at that. <laughs> He's old. As many descendants as the stars of heaven in the number and innumerable as the, as the sand which is by the seashore. Now, you know what? It's intriguing to me that Sarah is held up here as an example of faith in the giving birth to her son. Why? Because when you go back to the Old Testament story, Sarah doesn't come off sounding all that great. You remember the story. God had promised, he had reiterated his promise to Abraham and Sarah that they would have a son. The child of promise and that son would eventually lead to descendants that were that numbered like the sand on the seashore, the stars in the heaven. A great nation, right? And years went by and no son. She remained childless. And over and over God had reiterated the promise. But finally she's too old to have children. And Abraham, well... He's as good as dead. <laughs> right? And then an angel comes and he sa- he meets with Abraham and he says, "Abraham, by next year Sarah's going to be pregnant." Right? Sarah's listening on the other side of the tent and she laughs. And we know it's not just a laugh of, yes, I'm happy. It's a laugh of disbelief. Because the angel identifies that, and we're told that. So Sarah laughs in disbelief. I mean, we're too old. But God has promised. So how does Sarah get to be an example of faith? when she laughed at God's promise. Well, I think it's because her laughter at that moment was a momentary lapse in a lifelong faith. I really think that's the answer. It did not negate the years of faith that she had trusted God and his promise. I mean, she did doubt in that moment, but she came to believe again. But God was looking at a lifetime of trusting God, of praying, of asking Him to fulfill His promise. And I think that's instructive for all of us. Promise is the focus of faith. Does that mean that you never doubt? Does that mean that that you are some stalwart hero who never has a question that God will fulfill His promise to you? No. No. We doubt God in certain moments. But God's not looking at one moment, one snapshot out of our lives. He is looking at that long-term heart commitment. You know, we ask God for answers, and quite frankly, God delays those answers, doesn't he? And sometimes, honestly, sometimes we have doubts, do we not? We begin to wonder. We're not perfect in our faith, just like Sarah was not perfect every moment of her life. And yet we keep turning to God. We keep focused on the promise and coming back to that promise, even with our doubts. So faith is coming to God with our doubts, too. A recent Washington Post article reported on President Obama and his Daily Mail. Each day, the president receives about 20,000 letters and emails every day. Once they, uh, they are screened for threats, <laughs> that's great, <laughs> hundreds of volunteers and staff members then sort the mail into categories, and from there, Obama's senior aide handpicks 10 letters for the president to actually read. 10. So, now you got the numbers, right? 20,000 letters come in every day. He reads 10 of them. The odds are a little against my letter or yours getting through to be one that he reads, right? Pretty difficult. I wonder how many times Sarah prayed over all those years for God to fulfill her promise. Is God like that? You know, 20,000 prayers, well, 10 will get through and God hears them. No, that's not what God is like. God heard, God answered in his time. The fact that she kept coming back to God and trusting in his promise as the focus was proof of her faith. Don't be afraid of your doubts. Yes, sometimes we begin to think, man, God, I've asked you that so many times. When are you going to... When are you going to fix it? Even with our questions and even with our doubts, don't be afraid to go to God. Sarah does that. Trust in the promises. That's the focus of our faith. The catacombs in Rome are the underground burial chambers for Christians. Christians. And there you can see the symbols of faith on their tombs. There are three symbols that are common in the catacombs there's the dove, the fish, and the anchor. Those were the three symbols of the early church. These were the places where Christians were buried because they were under persecution. The dove, of course, symbolized the Holy Spirit. The letters of the Greek word for fish, ichthus, stand for the words, Jesus Christ, God's Son, Savior. So that was the second symbol. The anchor came from the idea that as Christians were going through difficult, insecure times, persecution, their faith in God's promises anchored their souls. You've got to have an anchor. The early church had an anchor. And that anchor was the promises of God. And even when they were dying, even when they were being buried secretly in the tunnels under Rome, they trusted in God and they painted that image as the symbol of their faith. Not painted, they inscribed it in the rock, mostly. You know, we may not see the results in our lives, but we still trust God to fulfill His promises. He is the anchor of our lives. The medieval monk, Brother Lawrence, who wrote the Christian classic, Practice of the Presence of God, once said, Let us thus think often that our only business in this life is to please God. How do you please God? Well, what does Hebrews say? By faith. It's the only way. It's as simple as that. Author Francis Cosgrove tells about a friend was an illustration of this playing and teaching piano and organ was her way of life it was her love and then her right hand became paralyzed leaving her unable to move her fingers it seemed as though her lifelong ambition had been thwarted over the next five years paralysis struck her hand at least once a year in a cycle of surgery and rest and recovery she would resume playing but suddenly her hand would be paralyzed again in April of 1968, while playing the organ at a recital, the paralysis struck again as she was reaching the end of her last number in this recital. And in frustration, she said aloud to the congregation, God, I'll never serve you or set foot in your house again. I'm through. And she was. Later, when she went to her doctor, her doctor's words stunned her, you'll never play again. Never. Despair. She went on a trip to Europe trying to change her attitude. Didn't work. God didn't seem to care anymore. And she was finished with him. But God did care. And he brought friends into her life that began to love her and share, though they gave no guarantees that God would ever give her back her hands, over time, finally in desperation, one day she prayed again. She prayed that Christ would just take her as she was and be Lord of her life. Don't know the way, I just want you to take over God. She said, Lord, if I never play again, it's okay. I want you. Well, a week after she placed her faith in Christ, she met a doctor who felt sure he could help her. Twelve more operations in three years. She was able to practice the piano for five minutes a day. And in only another year and a half, she was playing concerts and serving as her church organist again. Why did it take so long? You know, don't you want a story like that to say, zap, that next week her hands were fine, right? It doesn't work that way. God makes us wait through that whole process, doesn't he? Trust him through that whole process. Are you really okay with me? God says. But more importantly, you see, the years of struggle and all she went through now had produced... A woman of faith who is a model of God's grace. And that's what God wants. He wants our trust because in our trust He is pleased. Father, we often don't understand your ways. We don't know why it takes so long and why we have to wait so much. Why we have to go through the struggles that we look around and we think so-and-so isn't going through. But you want us to trust in you. And you are trustworthy. And like all of these great heroes of old, we can trust in you for the day-to-day living that you ask us to, to live. Help us, Father, this week to live lives of faith, for that pleases you. In Jesus' name. Amen.